0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four K E Y S that's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. One of the
1: things that is key to the success of children and I'd say anyone is to be related to what, let's stay with children for a minute. Part of what makes it possible for children to learn and to grow and develop is that they are related to as people who can learn and grow and develop. <laughs> if you are not related to as a learner, but instead are related to as... Uh, you will have to curse on this show? Yes, <laughs> Okay, sorry, I just realized I did curse already. But to be related to as a loser, to be related to as a fuck-up, to be related to as somebody who is not going to go anywhere because of A, B, C, D, E, F, you know... That is so much a part of why it is that kids don't succeed and they can't learn.
2: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. Thanks so
1: much for inviting me. Looking forward to our conversation.
2: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I came across your story by way of your publicist who asked me if I'd be interested in taking a look at your book. And uh, you know, when the book was called Performance Breakthrough, I thought, okay, is this just another self-help book with another bunch of typical advice about how to improve performance in life? And then I read the first chapter and I thought, ah, this is awesome. But before we get into all of that, Um, I want to start by asking you, what social group were you a part of in high school, and how did that end up impacting the choices that you've made with your life and your career?
1: What social group? Well, here's the thing. I dropped out of junior high school and started my own high school, which then I was in for a year and a half uh, and then I dropped out of that school. So the social group that I was part of for the year and a half that I was in a quote high school, uh, and I say quote, because it was an alternative, what might be called free school, uh, uh, was the entire, was the entire school because there were (laughs) only 23 of us. (laughs) Uh So that was my social group. Uh, and, um, we were, uh, let's see. The youngest student was 12. I was one year older by the time the school started. I was 13 and the oldest student was 17. And it was a, you know, like a one room classroom. Uh, actually, we, we had taken over an abandoned storefront in New York City, which had been a clean, a dry cleaner. So it was a former dry cleaning store. And um, that's where we held our classes and where we created and designed the curriculum that we wanted to study, uh, and discuss together. And so it was, um, the social group, I'd say uh, one way, or maybe a few ways to describe that. Um, it's, it's sort of a funny question. I've literally never been asked that. Uh, so I love it, (laughs) uh, is people who, um, you know, who were dissatisfied with traditional school for one reason or another. And there really were very varied reasons. And that was one of the, one of the, the, uh, the reasons that the school was a very rich experience on so many levels, but, um, but in, for some fundamental, you know, reason for, for each individual, people were dissatisfied with traditional school and, um, and either opted to were recruited to were excited about discovering that there were some young people and some progressive and innovative educators and supportive parents who decided to take matters into their own hands and start their own school and be be part of not just if you will attending classes but deciding what the classes should be and what it, what it even meant to run a class in between you know the being on the toilet cleaning schedule and, um, planting, uh, snow peas in the people's park that, you know, the abandoned lot that was right next door to our, our storefront. (laughs) Hmm.
2: What, um, prompted your own, uh, frustration with, with, uh, school so much so that you decided to drop out and start your own school. And then you dropped out of the school that you actually started. Uh, so I'm curious, you know, what, what it was that you found so frustrating, uh, And then I'd love for you to talk to us about um, what the curriculum design process looked like.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, All right. So those are three questions. So if I forget which question I'm supposed to answer, please remind me. No worries. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, I had been to... I had gone to public school, which in the U S if I don't know if you have international listeners, that's like the free school. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, you don't pay. I know they use different language elsewhere, but, uh, for elementary school. And I actually really had loved it. It was very multiracial. Um, I, we had, some of the teachers were very, very good. I had good friends. Uh, it was also like, uh, different class backgrounds. And so it was a very rich experience and I really, I just loved it. And then, uh, I finished that school and, um, I ended up, uh, my parents decided that they were going to send me to private school, and uh, I went to a school that was considered actually sort of progressive and liberal, uh, but um, I found it to be very uh, constraining and, con- and and sort of hypocritical uh, in the sense that they sort of said the right things, but in terms of the way that they actually conducted themselves the way that the the curriculum was organized, and also their their educational philosophy, was one which I found was increasingly outdated, uh, given what was going on in the world. So I have to now reveal my age. So this is this is now the uh, late '60s, early '70s, and so there was like a lot of social ferment and turmoil, and I was brought up in the in the midst of the civil rights movement and the early stages of the women's movement and gay movement and so on. And, um, and so I just was feeling like, well, this really, really interesting and important stuff is going on out in the world, but here we are, you know, and we're still reading the red badge of courage and, um, which is a great book by the way, but, but it just didn't seem relevant or nobody was working to make it relevant. That was one thing. And then on the other hand, I didn't like the way, uh, some of the students were related to, um, and, uh, there was clearly like the good students and the bad students and, For whatever reason, either that didn't exist in my elementary school or I didn't notice it. Uh, But I was constantly getting into arguments with the teachers about this or that thing, mainly having to do with the way that they were treating my classmates on this or that occasion. And there was this sort of, and, and and through this whole time, Srini, I was in conversation with my mom uh, whose name was Seema. Um, and, uh, and I sometimes called her Seema. That's why I mention it. Um, and so (laughs) Seema and I would talk and she was always very supportive and she would do all the kinds of things that a mother and a parent should do to help me, you know, get through whatever problem I was having, which ranged from stuff with the teachers to not having been part of the popular clique for a while, which, you know, I was shattered by, which, you know, of course all teenagers are. And, um, And, um, and then one day in school, uh, sort of the apocryphal story that I, I tell is that this young man, Peter Winston, who, who now a days would have been identified as being on the spectrum, meaning autism, being autistic. Mm -hmm. Uh, but at the time he just seemed like a really, really brilliant chess player, which he was, and very, very odd um, and, um, had sort of challenging personal habits and he wanted to go to the bathroom. The teacher wouldn't let him go to the bathroom and he stood there frozen because he was so afraid that he was going to pee in his pants. And I, I got up and I started yelling at the teacher and saying, um, that he, he had to go to the bathroom. She needed to let him go to the bathroom and that anybody who wanted to go to the bathroom with him and and stage a protest should do so and so a whole bunch of people got up and we all walked him to the bathroom and and so then I got sent to the principal's office and uh and then home you know which was sort of a regular occurrence had become a regular occurrence and that day when I came home I was talking to my mom And she said to me, um, you know, sweetie, why don't we just, you know, call this a day and um, why don't you quit school and uh, start your own? And I I was like, you know, what, mommy? (laughs) Or what, Seema? I was like, I'm 12 years old. And she was like, I know, I'm your mother. I know how old you are. Um, and, uh, she asked me whether there were other, other kids who felt the way that I did. If, if, if if I thought that there would be other students who would be interested in being part of an endeavor like this. And I said, yes. So she said, all right, go, go recruit them to drop out. And, and, um, and so I, and we did, and, um, and we started a school called the Elizabeth Cleaners street school. And it was called Elizabeth Cleaners because as I mentioned before, we had taken over, Uh, an abandoned storefront, which had been a cleaning, uh, dry cleaners, and we uh, were able to save some money on the side. And uh, that was that. Okay, that was question one, right?
2: Yes, but it raises uh, a couple of other questions before (laughs) we get to question two. So I want to make sure I ask them um, while I have you in in this mode. That is unusually self-aware for somebody so young, um, in my mind. A, you know, to have such an outward expression of the things that bothered you. And I'm curious why you think that is, that you were so self aware. Um
1: well, I would say that uh I would say it was my mother and it was what was going on in the world. So my mom um was are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Oh, good. Okay. Um, my mom was a, a radical. Um, she was, uh, very, very involved in social and political events and was getting radicalized, if you will, you know, and by what was going on. And she was bringing in particular me along with her. Um, and I say that in part because my sister, my sister as well, who was, I have an older sister, uh, but she was because she was older, she was also sort of like on her way, you know, to whatever she was going to be doing, um, which did end up, by the way, coming full circle. And she and I have been activists together for many, many years now. But um, but so I just was like I was very Um, exposed to, I mean, I remember like as a kid, I remember Lyndon Johnson was president and I don't, I don't really remember when Kennedy was assassinated, but I do remember watching television. These are now like famous news clips that have been shown, you know, all over the world, but I was seeing them live, which is these news clips of the police in Birmingham, Alabama, hosing down black people. And it was one of these, you know, as a child, it was like, what are we watching? I mean, this is also like, there weren't movies that showed that kind of thing back then. (laughs) It wasn't like, it was like, this was never seen before. And, uh, I was very, very upset and, um, and ended up sort of getting politicized, if you will, by that experience. Um, and I so I became just very, very aware, including writing letters to President Johnson, and I actually got a response from him, which which was with a with a bullshitty but nonetheless thoughtful response. Um sort of saying, you know, like in countries, in democracies like ours, you know, it takes time for change to happen and blah blah blah. But I was like, Oh my god, the president wrote me a letter. So I was <laughs> just like, All right. Um, and so, and there was something to that, Shreemi, in the sense that like, oh, like you could actually do something. And like, it didn't change the world, but it did get a response, you know? And I think that was, that was um, educative for me. And then, so I, anyway, so that was, that was sort of the mix of the world that I was in. I was very interested in that. When when Martin Luther King was assassinated, uh, I was in fifth grade and my mother came to the school to pick me up in the middle of the day and just said we're marching down fifth avenue you know she just took me from school you know and all the you know like we all knew what had happened because it had been announced um on the speaker system but uh no one's parents were take you know coming to pick them up to take them down fifth avenue to a march which was then stormed actually by by um police on horseback which was strange very very like wide it was clearly a peaceful march but in any event so I don't know I was just sort of um it was it was very much sort of the environment that I was in and the and and the times and and being fortunate to be have a parent and parents my dad I would say was also very progressive but my mom was just like she was just at heart an activist. Um, so she taught me to see things and, 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 and the country was seeing things that we hadn't seen before. Uh, and so I guess I was sent very sensitized. Hmm.
2: So tell me about the curriculum development. Um, you know, for starting your own school and and what that entire process was like, how do you design a curriculum for something like that? Because it it seems like you were rebelling against our education system long before it was cool to do it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Now it's cool. (laughs) Who knew? Um, What was it like? Well, this is now we're going to have to reach into the recesses of my memory. (laughs) So, um, I mean, we, we had a lot of meetings it was the first time I ever got to be in a meeting <laughs> uh, where we talked about what, what we wanted to learn. Um, we, we, had, um, we raised the money and we hired two teachers, uh, two progressive young educators who were our main teachers. Uh, we paid them like some horribly low salary. Other, other teachers volunteered. And so with their help, You know, they queried us and led us through conversations about what we wanted to learn, uh, what people were interested in. And so that ranged actually we wrote this we wrote a book that was published by Random House. So uh so when I was thirteen, I was actually a published author and didn't write another book until many, 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 many years (laughs) later called Starting Your Own High School. And in that book, which you can get on eBay for a ridiculous amount of money, uh, you can actually see the class schedule. And uh, there were things on it like um, comparative religion, the history of Cuba, macrame, um, uh, calculus, uh, the labor movement, Uh, you know, like all these different and these, so these all reflected different subjects that people wanted that, that the kids wanted to learn. And then we did the work to find people who would teach us that. And that meant like, you know, so I literally learned like how to network at that age, like how to get on the phone and like, ask for help and like ask the question, do you know how to teach comparative religion? (laughs) And then, and if you don't, could you direct me to somebody who might be able to help us? And it, you know, you had to say something about what the school was like in order to, you know, to let people know what it was that you were asking them to participate in. So that, you know, so we did that. Um, and, but, but we also did, um, And then people would come to us saying, this is what I would like to teach, because there was, you know, there was a buzz in the community, actually in the country, because we were, we were not the first people to do this, but we were amongst the first crop. And so we were being studied. That's why we got a publishing deal with Random House, because it was like, oh, wow, this is cool. This is new. Uh, And people came and said that they wanted to teach X, Y, or Z. And, and then this was, I thought this was very, very interesting, was then we had A conversation about what it meant to be in a class and to study something. So, did that mean that we all sat together in a room and somebody stood at the front of the room and taught? Was there something that was? Did we do something that was actually more interactive? Did the the students have responsibility for 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 doing work which contributed to the conversation in the class? Did we do it outside in the park? Did we do it on the subway? Oh, Like one of the classes was urban planning. It seemed ridiculous to do that inside the school. We should go out and look at public facilities and look at and study what was going on. There was a whole urban renewal movement going on uh, in Manhattan at that point, And so we studied that. And then there was the debate about what, when was a class done and if everybody could walk at any moment, was that, did they have any, did we have any responsibility to keep the class going, even if we ourselves were not like, well, we were bored or distracted or whatever. And I have to say that um I don't think we handled that very well, meaning that a lot of things just fell apart because people were just like, I'm out of here. I don't want to fucking be in the class anymore. And so then, you know, or somebody would come in and throw popcorn all over the place. I mean, we were kids, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so I'd say that some of those classes were like super successful and many of them were just like total bombs. Uh, and I I would say that more than any particular class that I took, that learning that <laughs> learning that we could create a curriculum, learning that you could that and and that one of the things it meant to to create a curriculum and to be in a class and to be in a workshop of some sort is that you actually have the ability to contribute to and design the environment in which. Learning and good development is possible versus a, an environment that isn't, that makes it not possible, if that makes sense.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and that has had a very big impact on me. I mean, and then of course, that, that it was such an improvisation that it was constantly changing and we constantly had to, you know, create a new scene, if you will, to keep the school going, uh, was very seminal for me. Mm-hmm so
2: having had that experience how do you view education today
1: do you mean education you mean like the education system or do you mean in
2: its current form today like you know because i mean you had an experience that i think was very unusual for the time period in which you had it and we're seeing more and more experiences like that i think but i am just curious having had that experience what is your perspective on our education system today
1: I think that the public education system where most, you know, poor kids, working class kids, middle class kids go, I think it's an utter and total disaster. I think that I totally agree with Ken Robinson that we are beating the curiosity and the creativity out of our young people. I think that... um, I think that for the most part, certainly in the inner city communities, um, and I'm not speaking for every school that exists, you know, in the country, but for most schools, uh, I think they should be shut down. I really do. I think that they are travesties. And I think that, I think that one of the, one of the things that is key to the success of, children and I'd say anyone is to be related to what let's stay with children for a minute part of what makes it possible for children to learn and to grow and develop is that they are related to as people who can learn and grow and develop (laughs) if you are not related to as a learner but instead are related to as, uh, you will allowed to curse on this show? Yes, <laughs> Okay, sorry, I just realized I did curse already, but to be related to as a loser, to be related to as a fuck-up, to be related to as somebody who is not going to go anywhere because of A, B, C, D, E, F, you know, that is so much a part of why it is that kids don't succeed and they can't learn because you're not relating to them as both who they are and who they are not yet, who they are becoming. You're relating to them as if they cannot do anything. And that that is something that is so dominant in our public school system that it is destroying the lives of young people, destroying hope, um, destroying people's intellectual abilities and curiosity and creativity. And I feel... I mean, as you can tell, I feel very sad and very strongly about this. Um, I think that if we're going to reform the educational system, we actually need to work, look outside of school, look in, look at environments and, 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 um, situations that are not as rule governed as the school system is, whether it's, you know, you're using, you know, the core curriculum or whatever the latest version of curriculum is, uh, and structure. Um, I think that you've got to create you've got to you've got to create opportunity and learning that is outside of that system in order for there to be hope for uh, the learning and development of our young people.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush care.
3: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Burrow's furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping.
2: And walk me through kind of leaving high school to building this organization that you call the performance of a lifetime. And then I want to start getting into the, the principles in the book.
1: Okay. So you want to say it again? You want me to I walk, guess walk
2: through me through? The, yeah. How you've ended up doing what you're doing.
1: Well, uh, I, I had been a performer. So, so I, so I left school I left the Elizabeth Cleaner Street School, and I never went back to a traditional educational environment, but rather, you know, if you will, created my own, Uh, including that I went to an alternative, I went to a teacher training program, a two-year teacher training program designed specifically to learn how to teach in alternative educational environments. But I did that at the age of 15 um, 15 or 16. And, um, and, uh, because I was always very interested as a result of this earlier experience in alternative modes of education and institutions and so forth. Um, and so I was sort of like on that track for a while in like looking at that and working on that and, and doing practicums in other free schools. And, um, I also was, it somewhat, um, not coincidentally, but alongside of this, I was also performing, I was a singer, uh, and a, an actor and, um, had sort of an interest in potentially getting involved in theater, uh, also potentially a theater that had a sort of a social activism element. Um, but, um, I became a singer and I, jazz uh and r&b and some original sort of pops type stuff and had a career doing that for about five or six years and uh all the while sort of like keeping my eye on looking at different ways to create change and to create learning and development and at some point in my early 20s i i sort of came to a um, a moment where I needed, I felt like I needed to decide what I wanted to do with my life and whether or not I wanted to try to pursue a career as a singer or whether I wanted to change the world in some way. And, um, I remember having this conversation with this very, very good friend of mine who was very into sports and baseball. And he said to me that he thought he was a big fan and was like, you know, supported me in so many different ways. And, um, he said that he thought that I was a very, very good minor league player in the area of, you know, as a performer, as a singer, but that he wasn't sure whether or not I was a major leaguer and did I agree with that. And I said, I did agree with that. He said, but, you know, look, you know, given that the chances of you making it big as a singer and a performer are about, I don't know, maybe like a thousand to one. He said, but then there's this other part of you that like, you know, wants to change the, wants to change the world. And, you know, he said the chances of succeeding in that are about a billion to one, <laughs> So, you know, what do you want to do? And I was like, I'm taking the long odds. (laughs) So I ended up dropping out of the whole music world uh, and devoting myself to social change efforts, which is a whole bunch of stuff to say about that. But, um, and at one point, and then years later, the paths sort of came together because um, I became part of a experimental theater in New York city called the Castillo theater. Please do tell me if I'm going on too long. Okay. Yeah, no, This is great. Okay. Uh, I became part of a theater called the Castillo theater, which was interested in doing avant garde, experimental, somewhat political theater, original works. Um, and, uh, and I was also very interested in, got involved, interested in therapeutics and therapy. Um, and you know, I was in therapy, uh, and I got involved with a bunch of people, psychologists and educators and activists who were interested in the bringing together of the arts and personal and political change you know so it' sort of all started to come together and um one of, the, one of the outputs of that was the, this theater that I mentioned, the Castillo Theater. It's an award-winning uh, off-Broadway theater on 42nd Street, which I'm still a part of um, and still does beautiful, very interesting work. Um, and we, I attended this workshop where two colleagues and friends of mine through the theater did this program that they called performance of a lifetime and what they did was they had there were 150 of us in this workshop and they had each and every one of us get up on stage and perform our lives in one minute and we were not performing i I was a performer but most people in the room were not were not performers they were like you know social workers and teachers and housewives and advertising people and you know whatever just people from many you know janitors whatever um and you know, we were all, like, totally freaked out, like, what does that mean to perform your life in one minute? Um, But they did, and we did, and it was one of the most eye-opening experiences and most moving experiences I'd ever had, where I was, like, 150 people, one at a time, getting up on stage and performing their life, and that meant, like, they were They were performing, you know, marriage proposals, they were performing deaths, they were performing their entire life from birth to now and somehow finding a way to do it, doing it, you know, (laughs) getting it all in within a minute. And then after each performance that each individual did, David and Fred, who were leading the workshop, um, they gave us theatrical direction, inspired by what they had seen to do a sequel and go someplace else with our one minute story. And then, and those performances were even more amazing because now we were being challenged to take something that, you know, we sort of, I mean, we barely knew what we were doing when we did it because we were so surprised by the invitation, but now we had to take it further. And we ha- we were given a twist, which might not be the twist that we would have given it, but we had to create with that and um, it was truly one of the most at that time one of the most moving and profound experiences that I and the other 149 people in the room had had um, and uh while I had not been involved in the inception of this thing or the design of it, I had been, I knew it was coming. I went to the workshop. I knew these people, I knew what they were working on. And afterwards I went over to them and I said, you know, this is an amazing experience. We should turn it in. You should turn it into a business and I want to be involved. (laughs) And, uh, and so we did, we, we formed a company called performance of a lifetime And we ran a version of that program. Um, and this was back in the mid nineties, uh, and like nobody was doing stuff like this. Like now everybody, there's like all these improv schools where people go, who are not looking to become the next, you know, Saturday night live person. Although they all, some of them, you know, some of them there are, and some of them there are not, but this was more for like, we used to, the tagline that we created was, the performance school for the rest of us meaning non-performers uh, and the idea that we were working with was that by performing by by tapping into something that actually is an innate ability that we all have because we all do it as kids we can reinitiate the kind of experimentation experimentation the playfulness the the, the taking risks that you do as children and that we're supported to do as children, but that we are warned against and, uh, and is minimized and, uh, you know, we become much narrower uh, as we get older, like, well, now I'm this kind of person, I have to do this, I have to get serious, enough with the experimentation, enough with creative creativity, enough of doing things that I don't know how to do. I got to, like, figure out who the fuck I am and get on that path. Um, this was to use performance, this natural ability that we have to play, pretend, imagine as a catalyst to help us to stretch and discover more about who we are as well as create more of who we are. Hmm.
2: Wow. Um, so I was wondering if you could give us an overview of what you call the five fundamentals of, uh, performance that you talked about in the book.
1: Sure. Sure. Um, I'll just, let me back up one more second, if if I may, Sweeney, just to say we, just in terms of the business model, that was a, that was what might be considered a B2C business model. We had a retail school and ultimately after a couple of years, even though students really loved the classes and workshops, we didn't have any marketing dollars. We would, you know, it was like a whole, the whole thing was an experiment. And so we ended up through a whole set of wonderful, you know, sort of curveballs that we were thrown we ended up doing programs much to our surprise in the core, in the business world and so now, and then we ended up changing the whole model so that by the by the late 90s we were now delivering variations of that program inside companies and so my book performance breakthrough a radical approach to success at work is the story or shares a bunch of stories about the work that we've now been doing in the corporate world with clients like Twitter, American Express, PricewaterhouseCoopers, the U.S. Olympic Committee, Rolls-Royce, Coca-Cola, blah, 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 blah. You know, some really cool companies who, um, as a way to help them to support their leaders to grow and for their teams to grow. And so the book, uh, Performance Breakthrough is about, that journey and some of the ways that we have helped, uh, leaders and teams inside organizations to meet some of the challenges that they are trying to meet. So with that said, uh, I act two of the book, uh, as you were, as you, you know, point out is, is about what the five fundamentals of performance. And, um, I don't think I have the right order, but what they are, are, um, choose to grow build ensembles everywhere. Uh, listen, the revolutionary way to have a conversation, create with crap and improvise your life. And uh, those are all what I, what we've come to learn are essential areas of, of focus and, and, and themes, if you will, that you want to, That you need to work on and to work with and to play with if you're going to grow and uh, expand who you are to become who you want to be. Do you want me to go into some detail about them?
2: Yeah, I'd like to kind of hear a more detailed description of each one of those five foundations.
1: Okay, okay. So choose to grow in some ways is uh, what the whole thing is about. Uh, It's the first one. And... uh, I think in some sense, it's the most important and, and perhaps what I could focus on here is the word choose, uh, because I think that's really important. Um, we, we often feel like that the way we are and that the way things are, are just what it is. (laughs) This is it. I'm here. I'm going to live out my life or my work in this, you know, either great environment, okay environment, shitty environment, whatever it is, this is what it is, and this is who I am, this is who I've become to be. But like an actor, like a performer, because we are performers, we can make different choices to buck up against and to challenge whatever that status quo is, whether it's organizationally or whether it's our own personal individual you know status quo and what if you're going to if you're going to have performance breakthroughs if you're going to develop and learn new things then you need to make the choice to do things that that really don't feel natural to you and that don't feel easy and sometimes you know it's the kind of thing like you take a trip somewhere that, to a place that you would never go to, <laughs> and you go alone, or you go with a friend that you wouldn't typically go to, and you make yourself go have conversations with people who you wouldn't normally talk to. That sometimes it can be that kind of thing. Sometimes it will be the kind of performance that you want to do. Is that um, you you make the decision to to look at to hear someone else's point of view that you either vehemently oppose or you don't even respect but you think you know what let me get into their shoes let me do the work to understand why they feel the way they do and what what is driving that let me let me take on that point of view so that i can learn and i can become a bigger person and see more than my particular view of the world allows me. Uh, And sometimes it might be taking a view of yourself, you know, like if you have people who you trust and who care about, or maybe even people who you don't, you know, but they they say some things to you that are hard to hear. And you have every single right, if you will, to disagree and to, you know, (laughs) reject it. Well, what would it be like if you also said, well, let me just let me just try that on and let me, let me imagine that, that, that this is the case. What can I learn from that? Uh, that's some of what I mean by, by choosing to grow, um, build ensembles everywhere. This is, um, we are not alone and, uh, but we feel alone a lot. And, um, I think there's, I think we live in a culture that that makes and believes that individualism is the highest and most important unit of life. Uh, I don't think it is the highest or most important unit of life. I, it's definitely important, and it's up there. But I think that we neglect and and don't pay enough attention to the creating of ensembles and the and the recognition that we are part of ensembles, we are the other, we are one another, and that we really don't do anything on an island by ourselves, but that we are part of a species, and we are relational. And so whether that's with one person, or whether that's with a team, or whether that's a family or, or whatever, I think that we can pay more attention to what does it take to build the ensembles that we are a part of. And in the book, I talk a lot about how to, how to do that, how to, how to get better at, um, well, this is, this gets to another fundamental, which comes from the world of improvisation, but a tenant of improvisation is to make your partner look good. It's all about, everybody in the scene and the scene succeeding as opposed to just you. And so how can we be more generous and more um, attuned to taking care of one another and, and building the ensemble even when we have disagreements and I'm not saying that we should not have disagreements. I'm just saying alongside of those disagreements, we can also still be attentive to how it is that we're creating the environment in which we have them. Mm. Number 3. Listen. Listen. Have you done any improv training? I'm assuming you have. Yes. I have
2: taken an improv class once.
1: Okay. Um, a long All right. Time ago. Okay. All right. Well, one of the fundamental rules of improv is that uh you this this line that I'm sure you've heard, the sentence is yes and. Mm-hmm. Where you say yes to what it is that's going on in the scene, the improviser says yes to what's going on, you accept it as real, and then you add what comes next with the and, given that this is real. And we teach people how to listen like an improviser, meaning it's not a question of just like sort of, you know, trading of information, trading of facts, you know, sort of transactional communication, but more like an improviser, where what you're doing is you're building with what somebody says, with what somebody does. So it's a very active listening. It's a creative form of listening. And um, it makes for much more interesting conversations. <laughs> you actually hear things that you normally wouldn't hear because your job in a conversation is to build with some, with what somebody says, as opposed to just sitting there, you know, it's like, I hope they finished up pretty soon so that I can say what I want to say, you know, but you let yourself be impacted on by the other. Uh, and so we teach people how to listen like an improviser, um, create with crap. is one of my favorite, (laughs) favorite ones. Um, Well, you know, we just, we all have all kinds of crap, all kinds of shit. I did want to say create with shit, but my publisher (laughs) wouldn't let me. Uh, (laughs) um, And, uh, you know, so I share a lot of stories about just the kinds of crap that we all deal with, whether it's your email servers down or, you know, you're working with a horrible, you know, colleague (laughs) or, you know, you're, you're not feeling well or the the client cancels you know the the gig or expands the scope of work and isn't going to pay whatever it is you you name your type of crap and um i would say it's sort of like maybe a postmodern take on you know turn lemons into lemonade you know in the sense that to look to to in the midst of, you know, rather than being totally demoralized and frustrated by whatever the crappy situation is, is to really say, okay, what can we build with this? What, what new thing can we do given that this crappy stuff is going on? What opportunity presents itself? And so, you know, for example, I was actually just doing some work with, with one of our client teams and, um, one of our, a team that is one of our clients And they've got a situation, um, they're a financial services firm, and they have a situation where this project team that's responsible for Uh, a whole technology overhaul. You've got some people on the team who are super productive, really, really good at what they do. You've got other people on the the team who are sort of like lifers. They've been there forever and they're just terrible naysayers and they're very difficult to work with. And then you've got a bunch of junior people who are just sort of learning the ropes and, you know, just doing what they're told kind of thing. And, um, And the leader of the team was really frustrated because the naysayers were really bringing stuff down. And what what he decided to do with some of our coaching work was to, to, to basically give more responsibility to the more junior people and to work very consciously on how to, how to, how to reorganize the team to support them to succeed, but also to not undermine the naysayers, you know, but to bring them in and to sort of break up the family way of doing things. And, um, and this went very, very well. And so the, 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 the good news was that A, the project started moving forward much more um, aggressively as it needed to. But it's also the case that they ended up, this guy ended up growing these younger people who frankly wouldn't have grown as rapidly because he had to put them into that situation. And um, everybody grew in the process, as well as the ensemble, the whole sort of culture of the ensemble changed as a result. But it was like a really frustrating situation before they had done that. It was was like he was ready to fire half of the people, but this is what he did instead. Um, And then finally, uh, oh, by the way, I'll say one more thing about creating with crap. One of the things that I really recommend that people do when you're like faced with a problem or something that's really annoying is to write a song or a poem about it. (laughs) And, um, I think that that really changes what it is. And, um, and, and, you know, in addition to how you feel about it and, you know, I mean, I mean, Hey, if you think about it, like what are the blues, the blues are songs about really shitty situations. (laughs) So there's like a whole musical genre devoted to this. Um, and, uh, you know, it relocates the problem because now it's not just this thing that's driving you crazy. It's actually something that's giving you an opportunity to be creative and to, to do something different. Um, finally, improvise your life, improvise your life. Yeah. Uh, life is, it may feel scripted. It may feel like I know this is what's gonna happen next and then this and then that. Well we have to take we have to, you know, take agency and um and and be an improviser and uh walk to work a different way, drive to work another way, take someone out for coffee that you wouldn't normally ever speak to, take on an assignment that you wouldn't normally take on. Uh, Take an improv class, you know, order different food. Just, just keep improvising all of the time and access this ability that you have to choose your performances and to, and to become, be not just who you are, but who you are not yet. Wow.
2: Um, so I guess I have one, two, two final questions for you. If we were to tie this all together, uh, Ultimately, I mean, I think the whole purpose is to create some sort of change in our life. I mean, that's what grabbed me right away was looking at the title. I thought performance breakthrough. I'm like, I think we could all use one of those in some areas of our lives. Um, So if you were to tie it all together and you're going to tell people, okay, how could I put this into action? um, What would you say?
1: Uh, I think that, well, first I would say consider the idea that you are not just who you are and that what it means to be human and what it means to be alive is that we're always who we are and who we are not. That that it's both a way to understand that we are part of a larger world and we are the other and it also is a way to think about that life is a journey and that to, to, li- to live life as a journey, as opposed to a stagnant, you know, this is the way it is, then we want to constantly be searching for um, cultivating environments and relationships, which give us careers, you know, whatever, which give us a way to do things that are, that make us uncomfortable, that, that are not who we are. Uh, And to, and, and by doing that, we, we are able to be who we are becoming. Um, I think that the other, another idea to think about is that what authenticity is, is that expression of our being both who we are and who we're not, as opposed to that there is one true north or one true passion or one way that we are, or even two or three ways. Walt Whitman has this, you know, said that, you know, I am, I am large, I contain contradictions. I am a, I I have, I, I contain multitudes, you know, and, and I think it's very important to to let yourself and to let and to support others to give expression to their multiplicity um we all have a natural ability to perform we perform all the time we play different roles Mm -hmm. you have the roles that you have sort of like developed and honed don't get stuck in them keep performing keep improvising and and let yourself be a kid again in an adult way um, and and get the help you need by asking people to support you and you supporting others because we all need social communities and environments in which to be able to to grow in these ways. That is not a single answer, I'm so sorry.
2: (laughs) No, no worries. (laughs)
1: Um, I,
2: you know, this has been just really, really fascinating. and you've given me a lot to think about. So I one last question, which is how we finish all of our The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Oh. I love mistakes. So, so how does that fit in before I answer that?
2: Yeah, I, you know, it's funny because people have uh, – Always assumed that unmistakable means no mistakes, and I guess you know I have always defined unmistakable as something that is very unique, so unique in fact that it can't be mistaken. I'd say,
1: got you, got you, got you. Okay, I was parsing the words. Okay, ooh. So ask me again, Sweeney.
2: What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Um, I think really being curious about our failings, and I mean both individually and collectively as a, as a society and a world, (laughs) I think that if we could take a more careful and thoughtful look at the fact that we human beings created the world in which we live. And there's so much about it that is so beautiful and so wonderful and so glorious. And there's so much about it that is problematic and that is ugly and that could be changed. I think if we could, together, without ideology, without even anger, uh, but with wonder and curiosity, be able to look at each other and, and say, wow, we as human beings have this ability to create such beauty alongside of this ability to create such ugliness. What can we do to move forward together?
2: Hmm. Well, I think that makes a uh, very fitting end to our conversation. Um, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with the listeners. This has been fantastic.
0: Oh,
1: thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to chat with you. You're, you're, you're really, really nice to talk to. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thanks. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Next time on The Unmistakable Creative. I think that's kind of fundamentally the trouble with 21st century normal these days is that we have done such a good job. And if you really want to geek out about it, you can kind
0: of trace the intellectual origins back to the French enlightenment, you know, but this emphasis on reason, ration empiricism, uh, separate uh, rational individualism, right?
2: That we have just wrung the absolute last useful drops out of. And then, you know, you just alluded to going to, you know, a, a, a career in academia, you know, undergrad, grad school, all those kind of things, which fundamentally continues to reinforce and select for one specific channel of waking state consciousness. Stephen Kotler and his co-author Jamie Wheel return to the show to talk about stealing fire, going beyond flow, and experiencing altered states of consciousness.
3: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.